Join me then. We return to Matthew 26 to verses 57 through 75. This is the Good Confession Part 2. And we're continuing that study that summarized this way. When difficulties arise, that is the testing of our faith. Our faith gets tested. And as our faith is pressed and tested, what comes out is the character of our faith. As our faith is tested, there's the opportunity for cowardice or the opportunity for courage. As our faith is pressed and tested, there's the opportunity for faithfulness or faithlessness or failure. And this text has put before us two examples of one of each of these things, courage or cowardice or faithfulness or faithlessness, namely as both Jesus and then Peter are tested in their faith, tested to make the good confession. And as we look at both examples unfold, the question comes to us then, well, how can we prepare to make the good confession? How can we prepare to be faithful even under the greatest of challenges to our own faith? And we understand we may never end up like Jesus in a so-called trial for our very life for the very confession of our faith in Christ. That might never happen to us. They might never put a sword to your belly and say, deny Jesus or die, though that happens to Christians all over the world. And yet, of course, we don't know what our future holds. We're certainly not spared those realities, nor was our Lord. And yet the testing of our faith happens anytime that we are really tempted to withdraw, to not obey, to hold quiet, to disobey Him, to disregard His Word, to disassociate with Him, even in the least way. Every temptation, every trial is an opportunity, again, to make that confession public with faithfulness, with public obedience. So how do we prepare to make the good confession no matter the trial? And we started last time, and we looked first at the good example, at Jesus' example, and we saw that we can take courage. This is how we're going to be able to make the good confession. We remember here in verses 57 through 68, we can take courage in the face of Christ's faithfulness. We look at Christ, and we find encouragement because we saw last time, He made the good confession. He made the good confession under the threat of death, under all kinds of injustice and slander. He held fast. He was faithful. And we find particular encouragement, though, because he was, we see that he was faithful for us on our behalf. He made no defense. When he was accused and slandered, he was silent. Why? Because he was taking on your sins. We trust him. And next we saw Christ's faithfulness as he made the good confession. And again, he does it for you. For we considered. There's a sense where he could have just walked away. He could have said, peace out. I'm not interested in this. Leave them to themselves. He could have saved his own neck, though, of course, he would have lost yours. Our redemption rested on him, whether or not he would be faithful to the very end. And finally, we saw him take their unjust condemnation. We saw him take it on the chin or literally in the face as they unjustly punch him and mock him. We just heard about that in verses 67 to 68. That was God's will for him. That was how God ordained He would save you, by drinking that cup. Nevertheless, despite all the threats, the tests, the wrongs done to Him, He was faithful. Jesus passed the test. But as our text began last week, we saw that Jesus is not the only one being tested, is He? For right as Jesus was introduced, that was in verse 57, we hear this in verse 58. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, Peter sat with the guards, or the other servants, to see the end. 
So we, we talked about this. At the very beginning of this section, Matthew is setting for, up for us this comparison, this contrast between Jesus and Peter. They're both going to get tested. They're both going to go under fire. Which one will be faithful and what does faithfulness look like? And then two, what does failure look like? As each one undergoes the test, we saw in verses 59 through 68, we saw how Jesus fared. He passed. Well, now our text returns to the story and we find the spotlight back on Peter. What's going to happen to him? How will he fare? And that's where our text picks up. And so next, we have the not-so-good example. We have Peter's cowardice enshrined forever in holy writ here. And yet, even in such failure, there is hope. And so the word for us is, find hope in the face of even your faithlessness. That doesn't have to be the end of the story, given we understand what our God is like. Find hope in the face of your faithlessness. Because again, we have enshrined here the great leader of the church, Peter, and his colossal failure. I mean, what grief is here? What a failure is here? But again, there's hope too. There's grace here. There's a lifeline here for the struggling, as this text is proof for so many, that we can find hope even in our own faithlessness. But it can't stay there being faithless. We must come back and return. We must be drawn back to this Christ, back to our Redeemer. But first to see this, to see this hope, we have to first look hard at the failure We must see how Peter fell, and what we're going to find, we're going to see his descent into apostasy, into a full-blown denial and rejection of Jesus. We need to look at those moments where his faith faltered, and we see that in verses 69 through 74, his descent into apostasy. And we're calling it a descent, I trust you understand, as the text unfolds, because you see this evident progression. Things get worse as the tests get harder. It's a downward spiral. First, his faith stumbles, you might say, and then it falls, and then it crashes into little bits at the bottom, ending in that full denial of Jesus. That is, with each temptation comes a step farther and farther away from faithfulness to Jesus. You might say it this way. Peter's faith is tested three times, and as the test gets harder each time, his fall gets harder each time. Farther and farther away from Christ. And it begins with a lie. Peter denies Jesus with a lie, verses 69 and 70. In the first place, we see this is the easiest test to come. And yet, Peter still folds. He denies Jesus with a lie, pretending he doesn't understand what's happening. Look at verse 69 then, finally coming to our text proper. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. And so sometime during Jesus' trial, remember, this is all happening at the same time. Jesus is being tried. He's being slandered. He's being cut down. As they slander and accuse Jesus, this slave girl, perhaps someone innocently, finds Peter sitting in the courtyard with all of the fellow servants. And she just makes a simple, and understand this, true observation. You also were with Jesus the Galilean. Now, we're not told how she knew that. Perhaps she had seen Peter with Jesus sometime the Passion Week. 
sometime earlier before, maybe even that night? Or was it simply that Peter had the look and talk, as we'll find, of a Galilean? But the conclusion was clear. Why else would a Galilean be there amongst all of these Judean, southern Israel leaders, unless he was one of Jesus' followers? And so this little servant girl makes a simple and obvious comment. And before this big, bad, surely intimidating servant girl, Peter crumbles. Verse 70. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Again, back to the contrast. Jesus is withstanding slanders and threats, and that from the most powerful Jews in the land who have the backing of Rome, who has the sword. Jesus is surrounded by accusers. He's surrounded by clubs and swords. And Jesus makes the good confession. But Peter, put before so daunting an accuser as a servant girl, he denies Jesus. And that's the way Matthew phrases it there in verse 70. He denied it. Peter denied it. It's a denial. Now, admittedly, it's not a full-throated denial. That's going to come. But he denies his association with Jesus, and he tries to lie to get out of it. He pretends not to know or understand what she is talking about. He says, I do not know what you mean. Only, of course, he knows exactly what she means. He just pretends otherwise. He deceives. He shades the truth. In so doing, he denies him. But have you ever succumbed to such a temptation? And I might argue, probably even by a far less threatening audience or accusation than even Peter had, let alone Jesus. You know, a situation arises to speak out for Jesus' sake, and we become silent. Or worse, we deny Him, or or we claim to not understand, and so then we forfeit the opportunity to testify to our Savior. Hey, Bob, you go to church, right? Is it true that you guys really believe only believers in Jesus go to heaven? You mean we're all going to hell, Bob? Is that what you guys think? You ever been there? And what'd you say? Did you get quiet? Well, I don't go to church that much. Or did you pretend maybe not to even hear them? Did you ever even deny your own faith in Jesus? Or your own understanding of the truth? Oh, well, I suppose some Christians believe that, but, you know, that's not what I think. Even though you know that's exactly what the Bible says. And then when you realize what you've done, how did you feel? What'd you do? Peter, in this case, he tries to extricate himself from the whole situation. He dismisses himself. He, he's going to try and separate himself so he doesn't get any more of these pesky questions. And so then when he starts off denying Jesus just with a lie, next we see he denies Jesus with an oath. Verses 71 and 72. Look at verse 71. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. He tried to get away, didn't he? This is why he goes outside of the courtyard. And yet, the charge still finds him. Again, the so intimidating accusation from those 
terrifying servant girls resurfaces. It says another girl saw him and said, now truth be told in both cases, yes, it's a mere servant girl. And that's part of the emphasis to make that contrast between those whom Jesus is opposing. But each time the girl voices this, identifying Peter, it's not private. This isn't a private conversation with him and the servant girl. All of those around can hear. And maybe that better accounts for Peter's cowardice. You know, they might then suddenly realize, oh, that is true. And they might grab me and seize me and slap me and slander me and condemn me too. Maybe I'll be following him to the cross. And so apparently caught, finding no way to escape, Peter feels he must amp up the sincerity of his denial. And so now he's going to do it with an oath. Verse 72. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So two aspects here heighten the denial from the first one. In the first place, just as we observed This time, Peter, he takes an oath. He's trying to convince the bystanders that he doesn't really know Jesus. He doesn't follow him. He swears to it. And of course, it was our master, Peter's master, in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5. He discouraged his followers from using oaths at all. Rather, let your word be so reliable, you don't have to add a promise to it. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Be a person of integrity. And yet here, Peter probably doesn't mean what he says, for he really knows Jesus. But he's got to convince everybody else that his lie is true. And so he swears by it. I promise you, as God is my witness, I don't know God. Not only does he use God's name in vain to make his lie more believable, he also, this time, the progression, he flatly denies Jesus. Again, in verse 70, he pretended, I don't know what you guys are talking about. But this time, he just says, I do not know the man. Under a self-imposed oath, Peter lies and denies any affiliation with Jesus. It gets worse. Next, Peter denies Jesus with a curse. Verses 73 to 74. Peter denies Jesus with a curse. Despite his earlier attestations... His promises, his oaths, nobody's buying it, Peter. Verse 73. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. You have to be one of his followers. We can tell by the way you speak. You got that Galilean accent. You're obviously with him. Your accent gives you away just as we can tell where some of our church members have come from by their accent. It's the difference between Harvard Yard and Harvard Yard, or something like this. I'm from the Midwest. We don't have an accent there. (laughs) But that was also true in ancient Israel. Depending where you were from, you had an accent, and they could tell where you were from. And so the way Peter talked, his accent was probably just like the way Jesus talked and the whole rest of the disciples because they were all from northern Israel. They lived in Galilee, something like to be seen from those in Judea, the back country of Palestine. So then caught red-handed, or you might say red-tongued, 
with his accent giving him away, Peter must lie again. Do all he can to convince them of this lie. And so he digs down further into faithlessness, digs down further into apostasy. Things are getting worse, aren't they? So verse 74, Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Again, what a contrast. Jesus, he stood silent before the accusations, and that drove the high priest Caiaphas mad. Remember? Caiaphas then, in verse 63, makes Jesus swear, makes Jesus take an oath. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ. Say something, Jesus, and I'm going to make you swear to it. And at that, Jesus did speak up. He told the truth. He didn't flinch. He didn't escape. He didn't try and evade. He was faithful. Where Peter now is calling upon himself oaths and calling upon himself curses to persuade them all of his evident lie that he did not, in fact, know Jesus. And that's what it means here, to invoke a curse on himself. It's to invite upon yourself divine harm if what he had said was not true. I swear to God, I cross my heart and hope to die a curse of death away from God if I lie. I do not know the man. But he did. Of all people, Peter did. Remember, we recounted that last time. Who was the first person to so clearly profess their faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? It was Peter, Matthew chapter 16. And when that happened, remember Jesus' response? He said, blessed are you, Simon of Barjona. Ding, 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 you got it right. But why'd you get it right? Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but our Father who is in heaven, he told this to you. That was Peter. And now I do not know the man. And then what happens next, it seems, as the very words come right out of Peter's mouth, the end of verse 74, and immediately the rooster crowed. Oh, how ominous that call was to Peter's lying and fainting heart, as if to jar him suddenly to remembrance of what Jesus had promised such that Peter turns to grief, he falls headlong into despair, to be sure. We're going to consider that more, but before we get there, just observe here, before we move along, Peter's progression into apostasy. Because it's like really so many other sins. Sins have a tendency, don't they, to compound exponentially. They pull you deeper and deeper in. Oh, well, I didn't really deny him. And then I just pretended not to understand. And then you find yourself, you are denying him. And then you're doing it with an oath. And then you're doing it with curses upon yourself that God would curse you. Oh, that second glance, that wouldn't be anything. Or that one internet search or that one click or that one person, that one next step until you wake up in a place you never dreamed of being in, in such rebellion and sin. We've said it before. We've heard it before. When you fall into pretty serious sin, you didn't fall very far. How'd you get there? 
but by a series of little compromises, step by steps, all the way down. That's what we see here with Peter. And to use it in that context then about our profession for Christ. So for example, if your faith in Christ is always a quiet thing, if you regularly stay quiet and shut your mouth and don't speak up, what conviction is going to rise up in you when it actually gets hard and someone goes on the attack? You're not a Christian bigot, are you? You don't believe in traditional marriage, do you? I don't know what you're talking about. Lord, have mercy on us. Forgive us for our cowardice. And may we make the good confession boldly, without compromise, without even the slightest hint of compromise. Yes, wisely, of course. But may we live openly and honestly for Christ, sincerely. He is our master, isn't he? Is he not our king? Did he not own us and claim us so boldly? May we be faithful to him. But we're not perfect. We have failed him. Maybe even you've done so so openly like Peter. And the conviction like that can be suffocating. That can lead to despair. That's what we see here with Peter. We see his descent into despair. Verse 75. As Peter hears the rooster crow that now early morning, something Jesus said then just popped right into Peter's mind. Verse 75. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then he went out And wept bitterly. Jesus' words came true. Despite all of Peter's protests and all of his best intentions, despite all of his arrogance contrary-wise, it all came true. Remember there back in verse 34, Jesus said precisely this is what's going to happen. Truly I say to you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, Peter. And again, that was all in response to Peter's Vehement objections to Jesus' prediction. We're not going to fall away. Even if they all fall away, I will never fall away. Jesus, understand, if we got to die, I'm dying tonight with you. Never. But Jesus then just uncovers his pride, doesn't he? His self-assurance and says, no, Peter, before this night is over, you'll deny that you even know me. And not just once, but three times. And Peter still was incredulous. Never. But now hearing the rooster crow, it has just stabbed his conscience. And what a mercy that stabbing in the conscience is. And what's pierced him? Surely there are many things, but... First of all, it has to be the reality, again, despite all of his protestations, Jesus was right all along. I am weak in faith. I am a coward. Second, the realization that he's turned his back on his friend. And not just once, but three times. When he was chosen to follow in the crowd, he was one of the choice three. And he has spurned it over and over again. 
Because get this, and this becomes clear as the Gospels unfold, despite his failings here, Peter really loved Jesus. But in his weakness, he fell. And when you betray a friend like that, the pain can be unbearable. Certainly can lead to despair. But what else struck his heart was just that Jesus gave fearful warnings for those who would do this very thing to deny him. Consider this sobering word from Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. Jesus warns us and says, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And it is no accident, friends, that the word deny from Matthew 10 that Jesus used is the very word that Matthew uses here to describe precisely what Peter has done. He's denied Jesus in just the way that Jesus warned to not do this, lest he also deny us. I'm sure Peter heard that warning, and I'm sure he understood the warning, and yet he still crossed it, and he still crossed it repeatedly. His faith crumbled. And so now what awaits him? Coming justice? The fearful expectation of judgment for abandoning his friend, betraying his love, this friend who Peter knows, this friend that loved him so? The grief is too much. He runs out in despair. Verse 75 again. And Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Do you know that grief? You felt that? Even for the wrongs you've done to others? Or maybe what you know you've done to God and Christ with your sin? Bitter weeping may prove just that reflexive reaction to a convicted heart like this. And it hurts. It's horrible. It's despair. But is there a way out of such despair? When our grief and our sinful failings have overtaken us. How can one come out of this? Is there a way out? And yes, there is with our Christ. And the way out consists of at least three things. How do we come out of such despair before God? And we're going to look at those series of scriptures up here for the remainder of this morning. But these three things define how we get out of such despair before God. And the first is this. You need hope. And hope is found in your repentance, not mere sorrow. How do you get out of such despair? Where is there hope? Hope is found in repentance, not mere sorrow. And we see this as the text in Matthew just continues. Because we actually find another guy who is grieved by his sin. Judas. Only we find his grief gives over to hopeless despair. He dies a hopeless death. Let's look at this. Let's look at Matthew 27 verse 3. And just notice that Judas, evil, horrendous, betraying Judas... He gets convicted. Verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Changed his mind, honestly, that's too pedestrian. Other translations offer something more fitting, like Judas felt remorse or regretted what he had done. Or or like this one, I think it captures the sense of the original well. 
Judas was seized with remorse. He was stricken with grief. And feeling so convicted, he's got to do something to try and make it right. And so he's going to return the blood money, this 30 pieces of silver that he got for betraying Jesus to the Jewish leaders. And then notice even Judas' confession. He publicly confesses his sin. He feels so horrible about it. Verse 4, as it continues. So he runs in there, he brings back the money, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And yet, coming back with the money, coming back to confess his sins, did nothing to relieve his conscience. And to be sure, the Jewish leaders did nothing to help him, did they? As it goes on in verse 4, the Jewish leaders said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. They don't care about Judas's soul. There's no compassion here. They got what they wanted. They have no atonement to offer him. See to it yourself, Judas. That's your problem, not ours. And so then in his despair, we tragically read here in verse 5, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple... He departed and went and hanged himself. Despair overtook him. He took his own life. He was hopeless. There was no way out. This he saw was the only way out, and it was no way out. But note this. He had grief over his sin. He confessed his sin. He even tried to return the blood money. And none of that did a thing to relieve the grief and give solace to his tormented conscience. What was missing for Judas? God was missing. Repentance. Godward, godly repentance is what was missing. He had all kinds of sorrow. He had all kinds of grief over his sin, but he had no returning back to God. Sorrow is not enough if it doesn't turn you back to God in faith. This is confirmed for us by the Apostle Paul. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 then. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. For here in this text, Paul makes this contrast between the kinds of sorrow. Godly sorrow, which leads to godly repentance, and then worldly sorrow, which leads to death. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. See, Paul wrote this rather true but convicting letter over to the Corinthians. And they were grieved by it. It cut them right to the heart. And Paul wonders, was that a good idea? I know they felt horrible as they read that letter. Do I regret that? And he says, as we start reading in verse 8, in the end, he does not regret it, even though they felt so bad even though it made them so sad. Look at verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 7. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, that is, I wasn't glad you were grieved in and of itself, but because you were grieved into repenting, into a turning back to God. You felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. It was a godly grief that produced a good in the end. It produced life because it turned them back to God to depend on Jesus. Godly grief results in repentance. That means real change. 
Life is what it gives us. Whereas, he talks about next, another kind of grief or sorrow, a worldly grief, that leads to death. Verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And with Judas, can you get a better example of worldly grief? And what's that mean, a worldly grief? A secular grief. That is a godless grief. A grief that has no view of God in mind. That has no look or consideration of God. And that kind of grief must be hopeless. It leads to death. Because understand, there is no hope outside of God. None. Sorrow must, in faith, actually return us to Him. Is there hope in such sorrow? There is, if it leads to repentance. But second, hope is found in your Redeemer's restoration. Hope is found in your Redeemer's restoration. So now join me in John's Gospel. Go to the end of John's Gospel, John chapter 21. There's hope in repentance if it draws us back to God because of what, or really you should say, whom we find there as we return to God. What do you find? You find a redeemer. You find a restorer. As we looked in Matthew, the end of chapter 26, where it ends with Peter, it's not so good. It's not a happy ending. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story, is it? Christ is not done with him, evidently, and he's not done with any of his own. Rather, what do we find? This Christ graciously restores him. And we find that here in John's Gospel, chapter 21. Now, set the context. We're at the end. He's already died. He's already risen from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples a couple times. But still, Peter doesn't seem to be sure what he should be doing now. I mean, think about this. The other disciples all abandoned Jesus as well. But we have recorded his threefold denial of Jesus. I think he has this lingering thought in his mind, am I back in? Am I included? Do I now have to sit on the periphery on the outside when he had been one of the core three of those Jesus invested in? And so we see he's not sure what he should be doing, so he reverts back to what he'd always been doing. He goes fishing as the chapter opens. And yet so often in the Gospels, when Peter goes fishing, guess what he catches? Nothing. But then once again, Jesus appears on the shore, just as he had done before. And he gives them a miraculous catch. They all swim in, Peter leading the way, and they have breakfast together. But then as they have this meal together in fellowship, Jesus asks Peter a personal question. John 21, verse 15. When he had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That is, I think, referring to the the fish and the fishing gear and his old way of life that he's returned to. And Peter replies, verse 15, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And with that, Jesus recommissions him. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs then. But then Jesus asks him again. It's like he didn't hear him. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus recommissions him once more, tend my sheep. But then Jesus asks Peter again, but for a third time. And the significance of that third time is not lost on Peter. Verse 17, note that. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Why did Jesus ask him three times? Is it because Jesus didn't know his heart? Did Jesus need to hear something come from Peter's mouth? I don't think that's it at all. Why did he ask him three times? Because Peter denied him three times. And Peter needs to hear the restoration that his loved is received by his master. It's like each time that he asks him, do you love me? Jesus is restoring him and undoing the denial that Peter had made almost a few nights before. Each time, Peter's repledging his love, and then so Jesus restores him and so receives him that he sends him back out, every time commanding him back to ministry. And this final time, Jesus reaffirms his fallen friend, he lifts up his head, and then Jesus gives him a command again, feed my sheep, Peter. Christ is not done with sinners. He came to save sinners, even professing, believing sinners, even sinners who have failed, who have fallen, who have professed faith and stumbled. He calls you back. That's what he does. He calls you to lean on the promises of God, lean on what he's done at the cross. Promises like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful. He forgives, and He forgives in full. That's what He does. That's what the cross is for, and He's calling you back to it. He doesn't receive you begrudgingly either. He receives you like the father in the prodigal son story running for his lost boy. He lovingly calls you back, and then get this, He so receives you, so gives you his grace, he then lovingly sends you out to show others the way back to him. And what's our message if we go? I needed mercy, and he had more than enough. There's hope with a Savior like ours. But third, where is there hope? Where is there a way out of this despair? Hope is found in your Redeemer's prayers and plans for you. Hope is found in your Redeemer's prayers and plans for you. Our last text. In case you doubt any of these things of Christ toward you, look over at Luke chapter 22. Turn over one gospel to the left and let's go at Luke's gospel. Here what we find here, this is Luke's retelling of the prediction that Jesus gave when Peter was to deny him three times. But what we find is that before he foretells Peter's upcoming denial, Jesus gives a special word to Peter. And this word shows Jesus' own heart. It shows his ministry to those that he loves, to those that he's chosen. So he foretells Peter's denial there in verse 34 of Luke 22. But look at what Jesus told him right before this. Verse 31. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. Simon, Simon, behold... Satan demanded to have you, 
that he might sift you like wheat. Satan wants you, Peter. He wants to pick you apart. He wants to take you down. He wants to rattle you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to win. And you can hear the concern and love in Jesus' words. Simon, Simon, the most powerful created being, the devil himself, who's bent on evil as you in the crosshairs. Is this not a hopeless moment for Peter? And I tell you, no, it's not. And that has nothing to do with Peter. Verse 32 again, Satan has asked for you, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. If we had to go this alone, understand, surely Satan would defeat us. But Jesus, our Savior, prayed for us, and he prays for us. And he's risen now to intercede for us for this very thing that your faith wouldn't fail. We are kept, Peter talks about later in his letter, doesn't he? We are kept by the power of God for salvation ready to be revealed. And the means to that is his prayers for you, even this moment, that your faith wouldn't fail. With that in mind, consider this though. Ask that question. Did Peter's faith fail? It faltered, didn't it? It stumbled. It broke hard. He doubted. He struggled. He cried and wept bitter tears. But in the midst of all that, Jesus made sure Peter's faith wouldn't give all the way. And Jesus is so confident that Peter's faith wouldn't fail, that his prayer would be heard. Look again what he tells Peter in full. Verse 32, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What does Jesus know is going to happen? He knows he's going to turn from him. He knows he's going to fall away. But he also knows because he prayed for him, Peter's coming right back to me. I will make sure it happens. And then when it does, Peter, you know what your job is? To go strengthen all of them to come back to me too. Because there's grace with me. Your faith will fail, but it won't fail because of me. Your faith will falter, but it won't finally fail because of me. You will turn back. I've prayed and I made sure what happened. And when you do come back, strengthen your brothers, build the church. Peter, Rick, may your own testimony of your arrogance and self-assurance as you get humbled and exposed, but then still get grace. May that example strengthen all the stumblers, all the deniers, all the falterers, those who are weak in faith, to be strengthened and find hope and return to Christ. Because understand, he will have them all. He will not lose one of his own. He will not ever cast them out. And so the word is for us, keep coming back to him. Our gracious Lord is our hope. It's not the strength of our faith. It's not the strength of our passion. It's not our victorious past in the Christian life. Our hope alone rests in the nail-pierced but risen hands of Jesus Christ. And there's no more sure place they can be. Rest there, my dear brothers and sisters. He cares for you. He's praying for you. He will hold you fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. Do you feel that? Maybe this morning? Know this. He prays for you. He will hold you fast. 
He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold us fast. Let's praise him for that. Oh, dear Jesus, you are a glorious Savior. You're a great Redeemer. And we uncover bits and pieces of that more and more as we come to see how much we fail you. Forgive us. Forgive us for being quiet when we should have been bold. Forgive us for shading the truth when we could have spoken up. Forgive us for our disobediences when we knew you were only looking and we thought we might presume upon your grace. Forgive us. Thank you that you are merciful. We confess we are sinners, but we confess you're a greater Savior. And in that assurance that you save the stumbling, may we walk in greater assurance, greater boldness, where we know you will hold us fast all the way to the end. We pray this for the glory of your name, for the people you've bought with your blood. For the glory of Christ alone we pray. Amen.